And I'd like to go through with a little more detail the series in the Transcendent Order of Dependent Origination that is focused on serenity practice. And as I said last night, the transcendent chain begins where the ordinary chain leaves off with suffering. And instead of turning the wheel and going around through that process of recreating suffering, we take that step in faith. So faith is the first first step towards awakening. And it comes because we're actually looking at suffering instead of just experiencing it. So Bhikkhu Bodhi identifies three kind of levels of suffering. And and Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, talks about that he really is a scholar. I, I don't actually think of my scholar. I'm not a scholar. Um, I'm more of a pragmatist um, with a focus on applying the Dhamma. And um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, when he talked about when he he's, uh, talks about these three levels, he says the most elementary level of suffering is physical pain and the oppression that can come with that. And as you may know, that's something that he deals with a, a tremendous amount. He's got head pain and pressure almost all the time, sometimes so bad that he, he just can't do anything, can't even get up. Um, And yet he does all of this amazing scholarly work. But he's used this ailment that he's had ever since, I mean, like for 40 years. It started when he was in Sri Lanka, just at the beginning of his translation work. And he's been using this head pain and pressure as a practice. And how can you meditate with that? How can you practice with that, and understand the nature of suffering. And he says he he recognizes that this is his karma. This is this comes, is there are causes and conditions for everything, and this comes from the past. But he doesn't own it. It's just the way it is. He still seeks whatever kind of treatment or support to relieve it. And that's really the model we all need to use as best we can for working with, you know, what it's what's happening at the level of the body. And this is not this level also in it's it's felt by all of us at some point, birth, aging, sickness, death, all fall into this elementary level that Bhante uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi identified this this level also when include hunger and thirst any kind of bodily discomfort the second level is more psychological when we have to be associated with what we don't like 
or we are separated from what we like, or we don't get what we want, our expectations aren't being fulfilled, and we all know this kind of suffering too. And then the third level of suffering is when we start to recognize that in this world there is no real lasting satisfaction. That the five aggregates that we would, you know, without reflection consider to be self or the material things of the world or any kind of sense experience is not going to last. If it's happy, we're always in danger. If we enjoy it, if it's pleasant, if we want it, there's always the dis-ease around how it's going to end. And if it's painful, of course, we want to get rid of it. It's kind of, that's just natural. But we don't tend to know that unless we've thought about it, unless we've investigated it. Bhikkhu Bodhi also talked about how the, uh, the ways people ordinarily relate to suffering. If they don't have the, this introduction to the, the Dharma way of looking at it, and it can it can be from the place of well suffering is you know part of some larger plan or it's given to us as a test or you know there is some justification And for that, we, we submit to it or accept it as, you know, some, some kind of um, deviation from the general good that we should just accept. And comply with, submit to, and utilize. The other way that we might relate to suffering is just resignation. It's the way things are. And it's the, it's the Buddha's um, quest for breaking free from suffering that brings a, a change to those. It, that shows this way out. When we, when we start to appreciate and really take on board the fact that impermanence is natural, then we no longer become angry or upset that things fade away. It's a different perspective than thinking um, some higher power took this away from me or didn't help me. And it and it's much more centers the 
the quest for happiness and freedom in our own control. And it's wonderful to see that that is exactly where it belongs because we can cultivate our way to that release. So, is it clear why we need faith? Why do we need this link in the chain? I think we, well, it's not just what I think. We have to have that appreciation, that understanding, and that idea that this is possible. This happens, people experience it, develop it, that there is a way. And one of the ways to develop faith is to put attention on the qualities of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. So I don't know if, do you have a habit of chanting about those or reflecting on those? Yeah. But individually, maybe. I know we we do it um, generally in our normal morning and evening chanting, and just to to read through the Tathagata is the pure one, the Buddha is the pure, perfectly enlightened one. So, acknowledging that he achieved that enlightenment. He's impeccable in conduct and understanding, the the high development of his morality and his penetration of the way things actually are. The accomplished one, the knower of the worlds, this gets into the the metaphysical. He knows the worlds beyond this one. The canon is full of this kind of, of description. And he trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. That's another aspect of faith, having faith in the training. Um, when I have you ever had the experience? Have you ever had the experience where you feel like what came to you was exactly what was needed to help you learn the next thing you had to learn? In, in the way I look at this, and the way I experience it, I have this faith that it will. As long as I'm uh, paying attention, looking, wanting to be trained, there's some kind of higher, kind, I don't know, kind of process going on that makes that training available. And that's how I see this. It's the uh, the awakened mind. It's not the Buddha, the person who lived 2,500 years ago, but the awakened mind giving us this training in some way. I'm not even sure if I care how well I can put 
words to it to make sense, but I think you know, kind of get the sense of what I mean. It's one of the qualities of entering the stream that you, that you have this faith in the training. The first stage of enlightenment, having complete unshakable faith in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and faith in the training. And I, w- I was reflecting on this a lot when I was just had started my holy life as a nun. And it was really tough where I was training. And I thought faith in the training, in this training here at this monastery, I wasn't sure I could quite get on board with that. And then I thought, is it the training at this other monastery that I might be able to go to instead, or over here or over there? And I came to realize it's much bigger than that. It's not about the specific training of a teacher or a place or a tradition. It's the training that's available to all of us, opening and orienting our heart, that desire to be trained, the humility to be trained, and the lack of complacency with what we have now. The Buddha is the teacher of devas and humans. He's awake and holy. With each of these things and each of these uh, sort of steps in this chain, I would really like to encourage you to reflect on where your own mind is with regard to these things and where your own level of experience is. Have you experienced this before or where are the, 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 the blocks or the ripples or the ridges or the impediments? And see if you can work past them. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, so we can see it now, anytime we look. It's right here, timeless. Time actually is an illusion anyway. Dhamma doesn't change. It encourages our investigation, leads us to really see the truth. And has to be experienced by each of us individually. Nobody else can just hand it to us. Which I, you know, it's from, I just feel like it's so beautiful. This Dhamma that's right here for us to observe and utilize. And then the Sangha of disciples practicing in the right way, living a virtuous life, gaining 
along the path, these stages of enlightenment. Worthy of respect and oftentimes available to, to guide us. So as we focus on, on, you know, looking at these three refuges and learning, developing, and understanding and an experience of them, our faith develops. And we feel more confidence and more joy as a result. And also what's involved in that is a development of our own virtue so that we have a confidence in our own conduct, our own virtue. And it's a shift from having doubt about ourselves to being steady in ourselves. And this brings up a lot of joy. So faith is the supporting condition for joy. When one sees the hearts of others that have been set free, we leap forward. And this joy uplifts us that comes with, with making effort and finding that experience. There's a, a bliss of blamelessness. Do you feel like you've experienced this in your practice? If not, then I think that it's worth looking at why not? Where do you need to put the energy or effort? Any questions so far? Thoughts? Concerns? Yeah. I don't think so. I think it's a, a matter of making that shift. So um, let's try a, a kind of concrete example. If we have a problem with someone, 
and we, um, I don't know if this is going to quite do it, but let's give it a go. If we have a problem with someone, maybe a boss or a family member or something, that's that's kind of gone on for a while and we're really upset by it. And we, and we continue to um, kind of go down the same path with them over and over. And this kind of rekindling of this problem. And then something happens or we turn our mind maybe to look at the situation from their perspective or from a different perspective or there's some kind of element of um, a newfound reason to take a different point of view, a, a point of view of gratitude or a point of view of love, and how our mind can shift in a way that we see them differently. Does that make sense? Suddenly we're relating to this very differently. And I think what this whole encouragement is, is the Buddha is saying, if we go through life and maybe lifetime after lifetime without any, any conscious awareness of what's happening, without reflecting, without practicing, without applying ourselves to make, those, make that shift, then that round keeps continuing. But instead, if we can see that there's another way and be released from this issue, then we have joy and encouragement to do more of that kind of work internally. So I know someone who had this like 20-year problem with her sister-in-law and every encounter was painful. And she, she started to get involved in Buddhism and she started to go to monasteries and she did a, started doing a lot of loving kindness practice. And she didn't even really think about her sister-in-law. She, and then at some point, you know, after some time passed and some of that work passed, she encountered her sister-in-law and for the first time had no feeling of animosity towards her. She didn't even know when that went away. But it, it went away because of that shift in what she was actually doing in her life, in her mind, the habits that she was cultivating. So I think it's important that we understand that this is actually happening, this is real. And it's kind of a minor, sort of mundane example, but if you expand it, we can see how the mind can be rewired. When they say this now, the studies of you know, neuroscience, that meditation, so you serenity practice, rewires the mind. And investigation, bringing insight, makes a, can make a sudden shift that you then see, see differently. So the intention behind looking at these different steps 
is to recognize that there is there is a way to make progress and what we might experience along the way is a little bit of a road map. And we can actually look for when do I experience this? And why is this step important? And then can I look for it? Is these things are, are really volitional. We either prepare the ground for them to arise, or we actually make them happen through our own mental training. Other questions, comments? Yes. Um, it seems like faith is kind of the tall order for the first step of this, unless are you just saying, you know, be open to, what if I look at this through the lens of Dharma, instead of, I mean, I don't know, like some, some of the ways that you talk about generating faith seem kind of monastic and maybe what some Orthodox Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So, I, when I when I encounter something that the Buddha taught that I just feel like I can't relate to yet, I try to look for little examples of it. And then, if you if you see some a little example of it, like one of the first things that encouraged me. And I mentioned before that I was an interfaith minister, and I, I did this training at a, at a four-year seminary. And I was in this, in this community f- for a couple of years before I entered the seminary, and I, um, I got to observe the students in that course. And I really saw them change. And I thought, I want that. Saw them change for the better. You see people start changing their patterns and their habits and becoming different in the way they interact and different in their lightness of being. And, okay, I want to do that. I don't want to do the same thing, go through the same process, have the same problem, have the same arguments, and never have them go anywhere. Still getting hurt by the same stuff. So... To me, even seeing that progress in my fellow travelers on this planet helped me to think, okay, there's a way to make this better. And you can just start there. How can I make this better for me? Not just as a personal thing, but how can I make me better in in a way that, you know, it's really got this potential of movement in a positive direction. So look for those little places where you do have faith or you do see the way out. You do see people progressing and kind of get on board with what they're doing. I hope that's enough to go on. I mean, I really would recommend just go to the monastery, shave your head, (laughs) leave it all behind (laughs) but (laughs) there's a tremendous amount you do as a lay person makes all the difference Um, 
just observing where the joy of the practice comes up. and continuing to cultivate. More questions? Joy conditions rapture. And you probably, if if you've been around the Dharma a while, then you know that rapture is one of the qualities of the first jhana. So it comes in concentration. And it's, um, it's volitional. You can make it happen. You train yourself to concentrate so strongly based on this this joy so the first question is well where do I get the joy and um, I think it's in where we put our attention again that development of, of faith and confidence in our own goodness and which is something we we have sometimes hard a hard time acknowledging but if you're keeping precepts and you're practicing then reflect on the fact that you're doing that acknowledge it own it you're doing good you're being good if you make a mistake okay I'm trying not to do that again no problem. In Western culture, we kind of have the habit of downplaying the good that we do. And it doesn't help. In Sri Lanka, there's a practice of keeping a, a diary, a journal of the good things that you do. And then when you're dying, someone reads that out over your, over your deathbed all the ways that you give and make merit and are kind and helpful and keeping precepts and not harming. And, I mean, any of us can like reflect on, okay, I didn't intentionally kill anything today. I didn't intentionally, I didn't take anything that wasn't given. Didn't have any sexual misconduct. Didn't intentionally lie. You know? Whatever, didn't didn't partake in drugs or alcohol. Even the stuff I didn't do, I didn't yell at that person that I felt irritated by. I was patient even though I was jumping out of my skin. Whatever it is, to reflect on that. And that encourages us. And it does bring up a sense of joy. And when we're concentrating, when we're in meditation, try to really bring happiness to the mind. Encourage the mind with gladness. And see if you can start to focus in a way that you see little glimpses of something more. And when I, I think when I'm experiencing rapture, it's a tingling in the body that can get very, very strong. Or a sound 
in that is this sound behind all the other sounds that kind of like Ajahn Sumedho would call the sound of silence or in yoga it's the nada sound. These are these are signs of concentration. You're getting concentrated. And when that intensifies to a certain pitch, not the sound pitch, but the certain intensity of this rapture, of this um, experience, it floods you with a with a, a kind of intense joy. And so you can, you know, as you sit down to meditate, go through. If you use mindfulness of breathing, you can go through the steps of mindfulness of breathing. The fifth one is about rapture. And you're inviting it. And the Buddha said, you know, observing your in and out breathing and being sensitive to that rapture. Maybe it just starts in your hands. And then you keep your focus on it and it spreads. Maybe some of you have had the experience of kind of having parts of your body disappear. And different systems and different teachers talk about rapture differently, and I think that that's just because different people experience it differently. But you can tell that that's part of the indication that you're on the right track. And there's there's a, a bliss in it. So rapture is is an intellectual. It's it's part of a it's a sankara. But then we go on to later um, when we see sukha, which is happiness. That's a feeling. 